Hey guys, I just wanted to reach out to you and let you know that Sherwinder is still selling amazing products. Some of you guys have been dragging your feet for whatever reason. If your shoulder hurts, do not waste time. Pull the trigger. I just bought uh, four or five of them and uh, we had two guys out. You know how much it cost me to pay for two guys being out with bad shoulders? We just pulled the trigger and we said, listen, everybody's going to have one on a truck. It's mandatory. You got to use it. Don't hesitate. Don't wait till your guys go down. It's going to cost you more. Buy a sure winner. It's not every day someone invents something that changes the game. I found out about this product that I'm talking to you about, uh, and I had to try it. So I ordered a few, and after using it, I'm sold. Now we stock them on our trucks. It's called Allbrace. And it will help you sell more service and buy you time until doors come in. There's never been a greater time for a product like this. Phil has a video on his website of him cutting a door literally in half, installing the all brace and running it like nothing ever happened. It is literally incredible. One of the greatest selling videos I've ever seen. You're going to want to check it out at all-brace.com. Joseph, how did my financials look? Oh, before you answer that question, I got to make sure that we don't share this on the radio because we're doing a podcast about financial money in the door industry. And there's not a better person in the world, in my opinion, when it comes to helping your door business out with getting your hands around your financials, understanding what it's doing and all of that. My fractional CMO Joseph Roberts is on with us today. How are you, bro? I'm great, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Now, you referred to me as your CMO. I don't know that I'm a marketer. CFO. Right, right. Okay, just want to make sure you got that right. Yeah, I don't even know what day it is, y'all. I didn't even know, like, Tamara even set this up and told me it's a podcast. I came on ready to talk financials for Aaron Overhead Doors, and Joseph's like, wait a minute, are we going to talk about Aaron Overhead Doors on the podcast? And I'm like, we're doing a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Listen, my world has been flipped upside down the last few weeks. Uh, but good news. Listen, I got to share this because I, I want, as business owners, we get so trapped sometimes in this like mindset um, that I, I want to share. I want to share a quick story with you guys. Such and such media is one of my companies and I'm not pitching it. I'm just sharing a story. So don't hang up. Um. Such and such media is outgrowing the space that we're in, which is a good thing and also a bad thing. The good, like the reason why I like being here is because I can literally run back and forth between my door company and um, such and such, and I'm bouncing back and forth all the time. But we're outgrowing the space. And in this business park, there's really not a space good for us. So I went online, I did a bunch of research, and I found this space. It's absolutely gorgeous, but it's like three times more than I need as far as like to be able to spend. It's, it's $7,500 a month. I'm not spending $7,500 a month for a place to rent for my marketing agency. So I sent them an offer and I was like, Hey, um, what if you build it out the way that I want? Here's the layout. Um, it's very minimalist, but we're using glass walls on one side, separate the podcast studio from the video studio from the conference room. 
And then like the rest of it, like we just want a little small kitchenette and then we'll, we'll do concrete floors. We'll do, you know, do the drop tiles, you know, whatever. Uh, but we want to open plan and we want to keep it clean and neat and, and very minimalistic. And um, I said, I want the rent to be 1500 a month uh, for the first quarter, 25 for the second quarter, 35, like it escalates up. Right. And um, I'm like, you know, I don't really, I've got a little ways before we got to move in. So like, you can think about this and let me know. I have nothing to lose because, you know, I'm, I'm not planning on moving out of here for probably six months. So I'm throwing offers out that are just like way out there. And this dude wrote me back. Did you see the email, Tamara? They're interested. Yep. They're interested in my crazy offer, but this space has been empty and not built out since 2010. Yeah, so which is I'm like, I'm just gonna throw this stupid offer out and see if they take it. And I think they're gonna take it and build it out the way I want. So I'm as business owners, like you gotta find opportunities and just be willing to take a chance. Like, I mean, you know how much money that's gonna save me? That's gonna be huge. And I get to put my people in a beautiful space with windows all the way around it, literally Chick-fil-A's in our parking lot. You can walk downstairs, walk to Chick-fil-A. I mean, and we're complaining about lunch. I'm never going to have a hard time recruiting ever again. Like, all I got to say is, look, you get to take lunch and you can walk to Chick-fil-A. They were like, I accept the position. Done. Done. Right. So anyway, I thought I'd share that cool story. Joseph, man, how have you been? Man, I've been excellent. I've been doing really well, staying busy and uh, certainly trying to stay up on the times here. But things have been great. How about yourself? I'm doing well. So Joseph's got his hands in probably as much as I do, it feels like. Um, Joseph's uh, speaking at uh, GDU Summit. So um, he's going to be, well, I don't, I don't even know if I call it speaking. It's going to be teaching. We're going to get in the weeds a little bit. Um, and what we talked about, what he's going to be teaching is life-changing as a business owner, right? Like, um, and and he hurt my feelings one day when, when uh when I inquired about joining his little mastermind uh, because he said, Joseph will hit you square between the eyes. Like he's just always been that way. I've known him since high school. Um, but he's like, he's like, bro, these guys are planned out like five years. Are you sure you're ready for this? And I'm like, oh, what? of course not. <laughs> like, no. But then I left that meeting. I'm like, five years, these guys have a five year plan. Like, are you freaking kidding me? Like I'm just barely keeping up with a year or six months. And I'm like, dude, I got to change my mindset. Like this is the way it's supposed to be. Like, I, I agree with this. Like, although my feelings were hurt a little bit, like it was good to hear that because it really gave me a bigger picture of what I need to be focusing on as a business. That's right, man. Ryan, the truth will set you free, man. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly working with companies that are that are and look, do they all have a, a five year plan buttoned up and tight? No, I think I think more is their perspective. Their horizon is out beyond beyond tomorrow. Right. They they are thinking about how do I create transferable value in my business and build organizations and structure such that I'm successful in five years, not successful tomorrow. That's what they employ people to do. Right. They they staff their organizations with people to ensure that tomorrow and next week and next month are successful. The, they are freed up to give their attention uh, to some of those more long range 
perspective. So yeah, but you're, you're making great progress, Ryan. Thank you, bro. I you're welcome. That. And for those of you guys who don't know, um, Joseph's a twin. I'm pretty sure I was much cooler with his brother than him, but um, was, wasn't I like closer to your brother than you in high school? I probably, uh, I feel yeah. like you had a little but bit. Maybe you never knew who you were talking to, Ryan. Maybe you I never knew. Not. Maybe, maybe it was really the same person. We could just play each other off a little bit. You really don't know, right? I feel like I had a good understanding of the difference between you guys. Um, like y'all walk different, right? Your brother walks with a little bit more swagger. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hold on now. Hold what? on. What? That no, that can't be true. <laughs> that can't be true. Uh, I'm just messing with you. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, um. I want to ask you a couple questions about um, like in the event, like we're trying to be helpful to business owners. Uh, and I don't want to give too much away for the GDU summit, but I do want to ask some questions. What do you see is the biggest common mistake between garage door companies and their financials? Um, you know, one, one that I'm seeing a lot right now uh, is uh, the most, I don't want to call it a mistake. I would probably say the, the most uh, common problem that I see right now is sort of this desire and this push to move into uh, these service field service based systems. Uh, service Titan is an example, but other ones as well that they put their effort and energy from a financial standpoint. They, they fail to connect those two pieces together so that they speak to one another correctly and accurately. So what happens is, is they, 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 their dependency upon their field service system to tell them how their financials look is is uh, is overblown, and they're unable to really get a true view of their financials, and and they're unable to tie those back. So one of the most common problems that I see right now, just straight up, is service software does not tie with financial results, and uh, and and I see that as being a major problem. And I see that as being a situation that causes people to live in frustration and the inability to really make speedy, accurate decisions on their financials. That's the one that's probably the most common thing I'm seeing right now within especially small, small garage door companies. Yeah. So I was just taking a note on my hand because I, I may, may, I may start another company. Tamara and I, um, for dispatch software, I've been kicking this around for a while. My cousin is like anxiously chomping at the bit to do something. Um, and can he hang a door? No. Okay. Uh, but he is a really, really good software guy. Um, and he's got a lot of connections. He just left Carvana recently and, um, he's on the market. And the so garage, the garage door conveyor system, right? Is that what you're saying? Like you can just swing through and pick up your garage door. And uh, I want to build a software that does everything the way it's supposed to be done. Like, um, like, you know, for example, it has the ability to take deposits and not screw up your financials. Yeah. Uh, has the ability to sync with QuickBooks the right way. Uh, yeah. You know, like there's a way to do it. Uh, but these companies are so well developed and so far along that it's kind of hard for them to go back and fix it. Yeah. And so Ryan, the second thing, just on the, on that question about some of the things that I'm seeing uh, right now, the biggest, you know, challenges or mistakes 
in addition to sort of the small businesses tend to get their sales wrapped up in their service software and they, they're unable to connect and correlate that back with their financial reporting mm -hmm. systems. The second one is, and probably falls more into that medium to large size company is, um, and I think this affects small companies too, but especially those medium to large size companies that have exposure on the commercial side of their business. Uh, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing um, is a real tightening down of the cash flow cycle. Um, and, and, and what I mean by that is, is, is as supply chain picks up, as materials come in a little bit faster, people are picking things up quicker. What we're realizing and what we're seeing is that the material you're buying today is worth 80% more than the material you bought a year ago, right? So you're having to out, you're having to, to front out a lot of money on the front end for some of this. And then we're seeing clog up in trades on the back end. And so materials coming in faster, you're paying for material faster, you're getting it installed later, which means you're holding way too much inventory. Yeah. Um, not on purpose, but on, on accident. It's kind of a bullwhip effect that we're seeing. And, and what happens with that is that you're ended up, your cash cycle is extending. So you're paying for materials sooner. You're unable to get on the job and build for materials uh, timely. And so it's putting strain on, on resources. And because you're paying so much more for cash, I do see companies having to really think more about cash planning than they did, uh, say, 18 months or two years ago. So is it possible that this is a good thing and this is a sign that we're on the tail end of this cycle from COVID and that we might be getting back to some form of normalcy in the near future? I don't know that I can say that. I don't know that I would say that normalcy is, um, is, is, on, its, is on the way. I, I think I would actually flip that over um, and I would probably say I see the increase in supply chain and the cash flow cycle is actually some level of concern. Um, about the fact that uh, supply chain is picking back up, even when on the door side, I believe demand is softening a little bit uh, and we're starting to see that. And so I would say, uh, you know, while everyone wants to see product come back on board quicker and the, the lead times we've experienced over the last 12 months are too long, we wanted to see them shorter. I think the reason they get shorter is because demand decreases as productivity increases. And so, you know, I, I don't know that it's light at the end of the tunnel. I think there's some things that are different. Um, you know, this this inflation thing seems to be very persistent. It doesn't seem to be going away, um, you know, and so I, I see material prices holding. Um, but I, I, I don't know that I see this as a positive. I, I really see, um, you know, because it went so far in the other direction, I think it's naturally got to swing back the other way. Uh, and, and, and that may be a little painful, uh, you know, here, here in the short run. Um, but I think supply chain improvement helps with custom, the customer experience, no doubt, right? Yeah. It helps you to provide a better customer experience and better customer service because materials are more readily available. But if you're on the commercial side of it, you can't get the, can't get the product in. It's really causing a cash flow jam. Yeah. We're seeing these door companies get acquired um, and announcing 30% EBITDA. Um, the manufacturers, yeah, you had Martin Door, you had CHI. These companies are presenting some very wealthy numbers, uh, mm -hmm. huge profits. And for a wholesale company, it seems to be like if you compared their nets to other industry nets, they seem to be on the extreme high side uh, to a lot of like wholesale manufacturing companies. Normally, wholesale manufacturer companies are working on very thin margins on the top end and then their nets hold pretty decent. 
but I think it's not uncommon to see 10, 15%, uh, maybe 20%, but to see a 30% net profit in wholesale manufacturing, um, how do you, like, what do you take from that? Like, what's your pers- uh, perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. Really good question. Having spent, you know, a decent amount of time on the manufacturing side of this industry um, and having sat in a, in a CFO seat of, of, of a major manufacturer uh, division uh, in this industry, um, you know, 30% is a very, it's a very solid, uh, you know, EBITDA number. Um, I think that is, it is very, very good. Um, you know, I believe a lot of these companies, uh, well, let me say this. I think, you know, EBITDA tends to run in steps, right? At times, right? There are chunks that you, that you get at and some of that's the way that you manage fixed cost. I think, I think the reality is that, you know, uh, prices have risen at a far greater rate than wages, right? So as prices have risen at a far greater rate than wages, it has and should have in your business and everybody else's business should, if run well, should be creating creating bottom line, you know, growth. And so I look at companies like this, and I think, well, they they probably went into went into uh, the pandemic with excess capacity, right? They probably went into the pandemic uh, with relatively strong pricing positions, and then they had capacity the pandemic picks up they have the ability to 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 move quickly um they have the ability to uh to to bring stuff in and get it done they they, they certainly weren't in a labor situation or um anything like that 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 was preventing them from really uh you know ramping up a little bit or physical capacity didn't have to build out to accommodate volume and pricing went through the roof and they were able to uh just like i know many door companies are are holding pricing margins, mar- pricing or margin percents as price rise. So if I'm making, you know, 50%, I'm in prices rise, I'm going to keep it at 50% and pass, you know, pass through the, not just pass through the cost difference. I think manufacturers are doing the same thing. And so, um, you know, I've talked with other manufacturers who, when the pandemic hit, they were already at 85% capacity, right? And the pandemic hit and blew them up to 120, 130% of their capacity and they couldn't absorb it. And so they just stumbled over themselves. And I think companies like CHI and Martin were probably in a situation where they were able to leverage that really well. Um, and, and look, uh, this has been the best of times and the worst of times, right? It has been the best of times from a profitability standpoint. It has been the worst of times of satisfying customers with long lead times, right? Yeah. And, and, and I think people that have been able to make that work and capitalize it have had really, really, really good years the last, the last two years. Um, and so that's been good for our industry. Um, so you said, good for them, right? Yeah, absolutely. You had mentioned that, um, material costs have shot up, um, revenue shot up, uh, gross profit margins have probably stayed the same, hopefully, or gone up. Well, they should have gone up. They should have, you know, and, and here we'll do a little finance lesson, right? You know, if gross profit margins are made up of three primary factors, right? It's revenue minus your materials, minus your cost of goods, or, or sorry, minus your labor for installation and service, right? If prices have escalated at a rate greater than your labor, yes, materials have gone up and so prices have gone up, but your labor hasn't gone up 80 to 100%, mm-hmm. right? But your material has, right? So theoretically, even if you gave half of that away in labor increases, you gave a 40% increase in labor, you should still see gross profit margin improvement yeah. uh, as a percentage because of that. Yeah. 
So but what what I'm saying is, is like your percentage of margin that you're pricing your doors, uh, your projects out at. So like, let's say you're trying to have a 50% um, margin. Um, are you saying that it would be a good idea to increase the gross margin that you're going for on that, like to 55% during a time like that? Or you maintain the same margin percentage wise, but because naturally the cost of material have gone up so much, you just, your bottom line is going to look better regardless. That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, I've seen the really good companies increase margin percentage as well. And they've realized that the demand for the product has risen and the price of the product has risen greater than, than my labor. And listen, the great companies that I know have given tons and tons of pay increases back to their people. They have, they have, they have not been greedy with it. They have not with, withheld. They have returned it back to their people, and they've done a nice job uh, of that. And I think that's one of the clear differences between good companies and great companies. Is they, they not? I don't want to say they share in the profit. That's not the point I'm making. They, 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 they are paying an equitable, livable wage to their people because they believe that they've earned it and that the market is bearing it, and they want to, they want their people to be successful, so they pay it. Um, so that's a good but, point. I would like to, I would like to spend a little bit of time right here. If you're sure. okay with that. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm hearing mixed signals along the lines of like giving employees raises with the inflation and all this stuff. Um, you know, the goal of the government is to, um, or, you know, uh, central banks and everything, they're trying to lower inflation. So if you're giving raises based on inflation and then somehow they're able to get inflation back down to two, uh, two, three percent, which which seems like almost impossible at this point. Um, were you did you give the raises um, in vain at that point? Um, you know, we're seeing the tech industry getting crushed right now uh, because they had to overpay to get people because there was only so much talent, and so they were offering stupid amounts of money to steal people away from other companies. Those people are now getting laid off in masses. You're talking hundreds per company. Um, and they're starting with those high paying people they stole away uh, from other companies. So it, we, are you suggesting that there should be a salary increase? Should we pay like a bonus that way? Because once you go up, you can't go back down, right? Like if you give somebody, they're making 50 grand, you give them 55, you can't go back to 50 because like you, you're giving them a raise based on inflation or the idea of inflation, but if it goes back down, you're not taking it away. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would say the great companies have not given, have not given raises because of inflation. Okay. I think they've given raises because they believe that, uh, they want to have the most talented, satisfied technicians out there. Now, the one thing I will tell you is um, about about the labor market. A year and a half ago, last summer, 2021, going into the fall of 2021, I would say everybody in the industry knew I have to raise wages. If I don't raise wages, I jeopardize the the sustainability of my company because people just they they need they need a, they need a raise because because I can't afford to lose them in this pivotal moment of, 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 of my business, right? Yeah. Fast forward a year to today, 18 months or 15 months to a year today, the message is a little bit different. 
the message is I need to be mindful of phrases. I need to be mindful of paying people. I need to be mindful of that. But it's not the guarantee slam dunk that I knew a year and a half ago that I had to do it, right? Yeah. And part of it is, is because the reality that we know is wages in our industry, though we call them direct labor from an accounting term, right? They're out working on uh, product in the field and, and, and technicians and installers are installing product. The reality is, uh, Ryan, that those people are fixed. They're not variable expenses. When, marge, when, when volume declines, you don't let those people go right. because, because you put too much money into training them. So I think with the apprehension about the economy and where it's going, I think people being a little more deliberate about the raises that they're offering, I think a year ago they were wide open. We'll pay, we'll pay whatever it takes to keep people. I think now they're saying, okay, well, maybe we do manage wages through attrition, meaning like we're not going to, we're not going to backfill this. We'll give a raise to the other people to fill it, but we're not going to backfill this role. We're not, I think there is some of that apprehension. So not that it's like the tech world where they're laying everybody off, you know, because of that, I don't, I don't see that happening, but I do see people managing wages more judici judiciously as well as managing uh, labor costs through, through attrition and things like that. And that's not happening yet, but I, I get that question frequently. Again, a year and a half ago, it was, I'm foolish not to raise wages because my people have to have it or else I'll lose people. Yeah. Today, it's like, man, how do I do that? And here, here's the thing. I think your point of once you raise them from 50 to 55, you can't take it back. I mean, good companies find ways to link incentives to their people uh, and pay that. And we all know this. This isn't rocket science. This isn't, you know, uh, this is fake news on, uh, on your podcast. Everybody knows this, right? You should tie wages to incentives. But it's hard. It's hard to do that because either people don't want to pay it if it's really great or they're nervous that they don't have the data to manage it appropriately. Right. Um, but but it's the way it should be done. Agreed. 100 percent. We're on the same page. We don't always agree about everything. No, we don't. But on this one, we do. Yeah, we do. We do. Consistency. In everything, including price. Reliability. Quality. Not just quality, but great quality control. These are things that describe Somer USA. Somer's not some startup company, not one that you need to be worried about going out of business in the near future. Somer's a two Somer and their family of businesses are two hundred million dollar companies. They're in over a hundred countries, and they have locations in twenty countries. This is a large organization who stands behind their product and works through integrity. And there's not another company out there willing to drop what they're doing and help you out like Somer. These guys are awesome. Not only have they been loyal to the Torsion Talk podcast, they've been loyal to the technicians and the owners of the companies who install their product. In my opinion, if you're not at least offering Somer as an additional option, you're cheating yourself. Listen, first-time dealers, I've got a special for you. If you buy 10 or more Somers between now and the end of the season six, while supplies last, we will offer you free shipping. You have no more excuses. The prices are great. The product is amazing. Go check out Somer USA and order 10 for free shipping. Yeah. Right. 
So, um, switching gears a little bit, um, we're looking at a P&L. Most garage door companies overspend on what line item? Mm. Uh, great, great, great question. Um, let's see. The first one I'm going to say is probably materials. Really? Um, what's that? How, like, uh, so they overpay on materials? Well, theoretically, it should it should be the number one item you look at, right? And percentage-wise. Well, yeah, it's the largest percentage of, of all that you spend, and people forget oh. to to look at that, right? So when I say overspend, it doesn't take a whole lot of overspend in that bucket. Right. As You, know, you could overspend by half a percentage point. It could be your largest overspend that you have, mm -hmm. right? Um, so... So that's where I would start, um, you know, is there. Uh, I don't, you, you know, what's how, that? How would you start? Um, you know, I would, I would certainly be evaluating secondary supplier options. I would certainly be evaluating. Word uh, in the industry, bro. Be careful. Uh, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I would also be evaluating um, uh, inventory stock levels, your mins and maxes that you have. Uh, freight does make a difference. Um, you know, freight can be a half percentage point of your material cost. Um, you know, I would be looking, you know, at, uh, at things where you can, you know, better predict, uh, your, uh, your, and, and forecast your sales volume by model and by type. Um, I would look at uh, a variety of things, um, you know, like, like that, uh, every little part, you know, every, every fractional percent you save on materials falls, falls right to your bottom line, as long as you're not giving it away, you know. It goes back to my point, like if if uh, if if I I shouldn't reduce my margin expectation or hold my margin expectation the same, it may mean that if I gain a half percentage point, I I I keep my you know I raise my margin a half percentage point, right? Yeah. Um. So so when you say overspend, I think that's probably that's probably not what you were looking for. You probably think it's something that I purposefully am actually spending money on. But that that to me is the number one thing. When I was in manufacturing, great answer. What's that? It's a great answer. When I was in manufacturing. You know, when we looked at headcount, right, every time there were two places that we always were willing to spend money, right? One was in salespeople, and the second one was in excellent procurement people, right? Because why would we not resource the department that funded or that purchased and led to the efforts to buy materials, right? Because the better we get at procurement, the more money we save, right? So, so that so, would be... Okay. So, sorry to interrupt you, but you got me really excited about this. One of the people that I want to hire for next year is a controller, right? And I've been kind of like bouncing back and forth between like, should I get a purchasing agent or like a controller? Um, and I love the idea of a purchasing agent because I genuinely feel at the size that we're at, a purchasing agent could potentially pay for themselves, by doing a really good job of um, negotiating pricing, uh, sourcing doors from the best place. Um, it changes the dynamic of how you sell, how you purchase everything, right? So are there any companies that you're familiar with that have a purchasing agency that's effectively done that and it's helped their business out? Or is that a theory that I've got that's kind of like, eh, not so much? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that it's a, I don't know that it's a theory. I mean, there's a lot of ways to, approach procurement. Some people approach it through people, right? Get a good procurement agent. Some people approach it through systems, right? They say, well, we're going to have very accurate inventory. 
we're going to have a very tight way that we fulfill trucks and other things like that. So, so they take the burden off of some of the procurement activities and they do it more through an operational efficiency type of standpoint. Um, I know very few door service companies like yourself or any of the companies I work with that have a dedicated procurement agent. They may have a buyer. They may have somebody that purchases materials. But there's a difference between a, a procurement expert and a person who purchases materials. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, uh, so that, that's the thing. And, you know, and I hear way too frequently, I need somebody with door experience who can buy product and I get all that. Right. And I get, I, I hear the need for that because they need to learn the industry, but good procurement people are good procurement people, irregardless of, right. of, uh, of background and experience when it comes to technical products, there may need to be some element of that, but, but certainly they don't have to be a purchase. They don't have to be an expert in all things garage doors to be a good procurement person in the industry. All right. So for the audience, because some of these people, you know, we got people at different levels, Describe the difference between someone who orders doors for your company and a procurement employee, like uh, a, a procurement position. Wow. Uh, I can be really offensive here if I want to be. Um, <laughs> so uh, the, the truth is, is uh, a vast majority of people that have procurement people, they have salespeople that are buying product. They have project managers who are providing product or buying product. They have service people who are buying buying product. Uh, I, I think this is a huge shortcoming in our industry as a well. whole. Um, you know, and and what are what are the differences? I think people people that that are really good uh, procurement people have a understanding of inventory, not inventory as in just the dollar. They have an understanding of how materials flow. They are integrated into your operating process. And I would argue. So you, you asked the question a minute ago: Should I hire a controller or should I hire a, a Person. The best controllers, the best CFOs, the best finance people in your organization are not the people who know how to book debits and credits on your accounting books. Right. It's those people who can get into, integrated into your everyday behaviors and be able to see the financial results of the company as business is happening day after day after day. They don't have to wait till the end of the month to see what the financial result is. They know it because they see it. They right. see it every day in the business, right? The same is true with procurement. A good procurement person is gonna, not going to be someone who's good at buying materials and knows who the right person is to call it, Cookson or Overhead or Wayne Dalton or CHI or, you know, whomever, Service Spring, whatever. It's not that guy. It's the person that's able to totally understand, well, how do we lay out our product on the floor? How do we prepare product before it leaves? When do we need to have it in? How do we have jobs stacked in the, in the, in the business? How do we have visibility into forecast? Um, that kind of thing. Our industry is nowhere near uh, ready for um, uh, this, but there's a system that I did years ago called SNOP, Sales and Operations Planning, and it's a continual life cycle of the company operating in this perpetual planning mode. And a key cog in that, one of it is a effective forecast. The other one is an understanding of your financials at a deep level, but also at an operational business level. The third one is operations, the ability to see understand inventory you know a good procurement person understands what material is turning what inventory is not a good procurement person understands when do i need to buy this and when do i not a good procurement person is able to leverage uh win-win situations with vendors that that are beneficial to you they're professional in the in the in the art and the science of of buying materials and ensuring that you get it timely with great quality at the best valuable at the best available price yeah that's not a buyer that's, that's a procurement agent. Good job. All right. So you had mentioned earlier 
that, and I just want to do some numbers because um, it's fascinating to me when you get into being a bigger company, I think it makes a bigger impact, but um, you had mentioned earlier, like even a half of percent, even a half of percent, if you could just um, assist your material cost a half a percent. Okay. So in that, in that, like um, in that theory, right. So, so what should material cost be of your total revenue? Oh, um, it's hard. I mean, this is going to, I'm going to give you a range, but yeah. I mean, um, somewhere in between 40, uh, 41, 42. And I see somewhere between 41, 42 and 45, 46, somewhere okay. in that range. Now, granted out here, now let me be, let me be abundantly clear yep. that that is, that has all kinds of variations in it, right? If yeah. I am a service only company, I'm not, I'm not, you know, yeah, yeah, I get it. But yeah. for, for just running numbers, right? So I'm taking a $5 million company. I'm taking 42% brings us to $2.1 million in material cost that we had to buy for the year. Yep. If we just improve that by 5%, it impacts our bottom line or our gross, our gross line, $105,000 which didn't cost us anything else on the fixed ops. So it should float all the way down to the bottom of your P&L, resulting in $100,000 more net profit or roughly somewhere in that range. Yeah, it, actually, if you if your margin was 42% on materials and you got that number down to 41.5, right? That would save you 25,000 bucks a year. So it's okay. not on a $5 million. Now, what is 20, but, but, but tell me another line item on your P&L where you could overspend by $25,000 and it wouldn't stick out. Yeah. That's my point, right? I mean, if you spend $25,000 more in marketing, it's going to stick out. If you spend $25,000 more in project management, that's good. it's going to stick out. But it's, it's just an example of, of I, I just think it, it's, it's one of the kind of tucked away areas because the number's so big that you don't feel like, these small percentages play. And it's probably somewhere you can grab a half a percent because like if you, if you're doing that type of volume, you could call your suppliers and be like, Hey dude, um, I have a really good feeling that you're paying less for material right now than you were a year and a half, two years ago. How about you pass some of that on to me by giving me 1% or a half percent and automatically through one phone call, you just helped your bottom line 25 grand. Yeah. Yeah, that's one that's one way to look at it. Yep. So there's lots of different perspectives, right? When it comes sure. to that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um yeah, I just think, you know, we just we neglect that line. We think we pay what we pay and it, it is what it is, you know. And then we negotiate on big projects. Oh, give me a few percents here. Oh, let me pay you when I get paid. We do all that kind of stuff. But I'm talking about recurring profitability changes through you know, through through effective return. So let's talk about, you know, door guys. You know, I started Torsion Talk podcast. Um with the idea that most door guys are, they were installers or technicians, not so much like business people. Yep. Most of them. Okay. Yep. Some have learned really well how to be a business owner and then others, not so much. They're just reflecting what they've watched from other people who run the door companies that they worked for. So, um, I got to believe like these numbers got to feel very intimidating to guys who have no 
business owner or training or financial experience, um, some of which I'd imagine probably don't even have a personal budget. And here they are like building and growing a company. And it was probably really easy because, you know, in the beginning you have buckets, I call them buckets. It's like, you know, Hey, I've got, I got, uh, I've sold three doors. Um, you know, it cost me this much and everything's tied to the job and mentally you can kind of do that. And all your overhead is really low, but then you get to the point where you're growing and all of a sudden now it's like all your expenses are kind of in a chunk and it's not segmented into by job in your mind. Um, and then you start looking at reports and you're like, man, this is overwhelming. At what point do you suggest, um, a business can't go past, like you literally should not go past this point without some help on the financials or having a very clear understanding of what you're doing. Is there a dollar value, like a million or 2 million or whatever? Like once you get to this point, you literally cannot run your company for the most part, unless you're just hitting so high that you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, so I, I don't know that the, I don't know that this works, but I would say you know if I had to give you a number, I would say you know a guy in a truck can go out and generate a million dollars a year, mm-hmm. right? And 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 if we're going to measure success on the number of trips you can take to Mexico on that, they're probably going to cap out at like two. Yeah. Right. Like, and we know all these all these you know manufacturers love to take people to Mexico. Something about door people and in Latin culture, like they, we just like to get down there. I, I don't know, but, but anyhow, like, so, so you, you look at this and you, uh, our next event is going to be in Mexico now. It, what's that? Next year you going to be in Mexico. Yeah. Probably Cabo. That's where everybody else seems to want to go. Right. So, but here, here's the thing, right. It's like they, you know, to, the door guy that started the business years ago as a technician, he, you know, he, or she, for that matter, I don't know, uh, Tamara, maybe, maybe, maybe you started the door business and, but they did it and they, and probably for the first several years, they looked at, they measured their success on the number of trips they could take. Right. Uh, and eventually it's gotten to the point where uh, that's, that's not really going to cut it anymore. So I think you're going to get to a number in a couple million dollars, say two, two, two and a half million, where you're going to say, I can't, I can't do it on my own anymore. But here, here's the thing I would say, don't, don't shortchange yourself. Like, just like you make an investment in a truck, just like you make an investment. Look, the greatest businesses that that are successful make the decision up front to say, I know who I am and who I'm not, mm-hmm. right? And I know that I am not a financial expert. And guess what will derail a business less than, quicker than not knowing how to solve a service problem? A bad financial decision, yeah. yep. right? And so I just think they, you know, you should go into it with eyes wide open from the very beginning, build it into your pricing for crying out loud, charge your customer for the cost of your financial services, right? Because you have a professional organization. I think they should do it from the very beginning and be honest, man. The key to leadership is self-awareness, right? Be self-aware of what you are and what you're not. And don't be afraid to supplement yourself with people around you. One of the greatest people that I know in our industry uh, is a financial person by trade. And guess what he doesn't do? He doesn't do his own financials. Wow. He hires, he has a controller that does it for him. And it's not because he can't do it. It's because that's not what he needs to be doing as the owner of the business. He could do it in his sleep. I'm the best door salesperson you've ever met. And yeah, and you need to hire door salespeople. Not hire door salespeople. 
Yeah. And, oh, no. and, and, and that's another thing is, you know, listen, we think, oh, well, let, let me let me do what I'm really good at. Let me let me go do what I'm really good at. Well, you spend too much time doing what you're good at. And all of a sudden you realize I'm the bottleneck of my own business. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's there's a lot that there's a lot that goes into that, um, you know, but I think, you know, if you're looking for a number. I think once you certainly reach the point where you can't do it in a truck anymore, you absolutely you must have it. Right. But I would argue from the very beginning, if you if you plan on building something that's going to transfer value to somebody else, selling it, giving it to a child, to an uncle, you know, whatever, yeah. you know, giving it to your employees, you owe it to your to the value of your company to instill a financial professional in it from day one. Right. Along that line, I know you work with Casey Foley, Joseph, and he's in our GDU group as well. And he said the other day. He's like, you know, cause his business, he's, uh, it's provided him with a lot of like freedom, the leaps and bounds that he's made up from a financial standpoint over the last year. And his company is 41 years old. And he, he mentioned in the meeting, like, just think about if we had started doing this 40 years ago, like yeah. what, like it's made such a difference already within the past few months, if yeah. they had been doing it over the course of their yeah. business, they'd be in a completely different place. Yeah, and yeah, I've had a you know first a front row seat to that that improvement. Yeah. It has been fantastic to see that. Yeah. Um, but it's a great point. I mean, you you think about and look, we can't live in hindsight, right? Like what what could have been and should have been, but we should use those examples. We should learn from the lessons of our peers, not to repeat right. those things, right? And that's that's why GDU, why the E squared program that we run on on the peer group side are, is is so valuable because. Um, you know, our, our program really focuses more on that high end uh, owner perspective, um, you know, but we definitely get in and training other things and, and you guys are, you know, work, working with with a lot of people, too. But 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 learn from your peers and be transparent and honest with them and and, yeah. and, and, and learn from that. Don't you don't have to repeat, you know, the same challenges that, as Casey mentioned, you know, that, that, right. that they had for, for 40 years, um, you know, but but, but there, there's, you know, there's no better time to act than now. Yeah. And guys, I'm telling you, there's never been a better time to get started on learning what you don't know. We are in a recession, regardless of what our government's trying to tell you. We had two straight uh, periods of negative GDP, which gives us a recession. I know the rules change, so technically we're not. But the mindset, the planning, the data, you need to dive into the data. You need to make good, smart decisions like uh, Joseph mentioned, you got to watch your expenses. A half a percent on material costs can make a huge difference. And it could just be one phone call away. There's so many things that you could learn um, by diving into your data and your books and your money. Um, I'm going to ask one final question and we'll wrap it up. Joseph, I'm a business owner. I'm just now taking my finances serious. Um, I, I have these high highs and low lows and when we're low on cash flow, I freak out. Um, what, what are two or three financial numbers or reports I should be watching to help me make better decisions and, uh, manage my money? Uh, two items really quick, uh, inventory and AR in recessionary times and spaces. It's about cash flow management in many ways. So I'd be focusing there. Uh, the third thing, which is not going to show up on your financials, but eventually will show up on your financials is I challenge everyone to start looking at the, the difference, the time, and especially if you guys have sophisticated systems, you should be able to do this. Start monitoring and be monitoring the difference between date quoted and date accepted by the customer, right? Before you see quotes stop, 
you will see an, you will see a, an, a, a, uh, an expansion of that time. It once was I quoted it, they accepted it the same day. I quoted it, then they accepted it three days. I quoted it, they accepted it a week. I quoted it, I called them in a week. They said, look, we're trying to get approval on this. Call me back in another week. Then it's a month. Then it's also, we don't quote it all, right? Start monitoring the days between quote provided and quote accepted, especially on the commercial side of the business. Um, that, that would be some, but that's not in your financials, but it eventually will show up in your financials. Um, that's so, that, so look, good. I've run all of my businesses uh, and run departments for other companies based on sales. Revenue follows sales. So you can almost always tell, you know, if I have a slow cash flow problem, like a month, I can go back and I can look at my sales two months ago and I can be like, mm, this is why, right? Yeah. So, or on the flip side of that, if I have a slow sales month, I know two months from now, we might have a cash flow problem. So I can start making adjustments now selling mm -hmm. off inventory, running promotions, whatever, to try to get that going to, yep. to fill the slot. So yep. um, sales can tell you a lot. What he mentioned is quite honestly, just a very simple pipeline report. Uh, the proper pipeline reports will give you days to close um, and you can track all of that. So uh, if, you're, if you're looking at you know, your sales pipeline for door sales, uh, you should have in there days to close and be able to see your average days. And that is a trackable event. We use monday.com for that. And it's very easy and clean and neat for us. Um, strongly recommend that, but there's other companies like pipe drive and, and many others. So um, make sure you're setting up a pipeline report uh, for your sales department on selling equipment, things like commercial doors, uh, dock equipment, residential doors, anything where you got to sell it and go back usually uh, where there's any type of time frame where they might uh, get to quote and accept later. Not so much on the service side, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's more on the equipment side. But so, quoted, ser quoted service should be the same. The same. Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for following along Torture Talk podcast. You guys are freaking awesome. I love you guys. Uh, stay safe out there. Be good. Pay attention to your numbers, guys. This is magic and it can help reduce your stress level. I stress out on what I don't know. So a lot of times I spend hours and hours diving in, looking at stuff and asking questions and learning, and that helps reduce my stress dramatically. Closing your eyes and throwing a dart is not gonna get it done anymore. You gotta focus on the details and now is the time. Make sure if you have any questions, um, you can uh, check out Joseph Roberts. Uh, he speaks at a lot of the IDA events. Make sure if you see him speaking at one, go check out his session. He is full of wisdom and knowledge. He also does like a fractional CFO thing. Um, and he's got like a peer group similar to GDU, uh, slightly different, but similar. And so um, make sure you check him out. He's amazing. I've known him since high school. Yes, his, his twin brother is cooler, but he's very smart. He's much smarter than his brother actually. Uh, so hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Make sure you hit us up on Facebook. Love you guys. See you at GDU Summit in Dallas in December. You do not want to miss it. Holla.